The Athletic. Hello everyone and welcome to The Athletic's review of the dramatic final day of the 2021-22 Premier League season. My name is Adam Leventhal. I do hope you're all well and you're just sort of coming back down after that high drama. We are live on Twitter, on Facebook and on YouTube. And over the next hour, we're going to be joined by our dedicated uh, team of reporters who watched the drama unfold, the day of twists and turns in the race for the title, the European places and also the battle to avoid the drop as well. It ended with Manchester City crowned champions once again. Their eighth league title, their sixth in eight Premier League seasons, their fourth in the last five, and all under Pep Guardiola. Back-to-back titles once again uh, for Pep Guardiola. Uh, Liverpool runners-up, and for such a long time on that final afternoon, the thought of the quadruple was still there for them, especially when Aston Villa were 2-0 up at the Etihad and there were 76 minutes on the clock before that dramatic comeback for Manchester City. Elsewhere, uh, Tottenham confirmed their place in the Champions League with that thumping victory at Carrow Road. Uh, They will be alongside Chelsea in the Champions League. Arsenal and Manchester United are going to be in the Europa League and it's West Ham in the Europa Conference League. They finished in seventh. Then at the bottom, it was drama all the way until the end, wasn't it? With Burnley losing at home against Newcastle and going down and Leeds winning at Brentford to stay up in dramatic fashion. We're going to be reflecting on all of that. Plus, we're going to be looking at some of the best individual performers as well as um, the, the team performance, of course, of all those clubs that we cover in detail on The Athletic. If you're not yet a subscriber, head on to theathletic.com and you can join The Athletic family. It is the end of the season. There is a buzz in the newsroom here. This is our London HQ. Um, Let's start by welcoming our data analyst here at The Athletic, Mark Carey. Let's start at the very top there. The difference between Liverpool and Manchester City at the moment shows no sign of abating and you know they are just a league apart aren't they yeah it's it's something that i looked at quite recently actually just of how much they have kind of pulled away and just how close they have been over the last four seasons really so i did a piece going back quite a while now but it's still very much the same that there's actually only one point that splits them um over the past four seasons so manchester city have accrued 358 points um since uh since the four seasons ago and Liverpool have got 357 so going right to the the final day obviously one point within it at the end of this season is also just indicative of how close it's been uh, in the last four seasons so they are head and shoulders above uh, everyone else in terms of quality but actually looking at the numbers and the the points that they've accrued there's really nothing to choose between them. In terms of um, the fact that what what is it 18 points that, that Chelsea were back from from Liverpool and Manchester City is there any are there any signs that any of the chasing pack can do anything in particular to to try and cut this gap? Are you seeing anything that might give give the rest some sort of hope? I don't think so, and I'm almost going to mime to you as well Adam, to say no. Um, not least because going back a few sort of months ago now, the the underlying numbers for for Chelsea as well their their expected goal difference didn't actually look 
all that favourable, even when they were sort of threatening to, to be a lot closer to Manchester City and Liverpool towards the start of the season. So it seemed to always kind of be the case that um, that it was going to be Manchester City and Liverpool pulling away. Obviously, last season with Liverpool, um, they had, you know, they were ravaged by injuries and things like that. But um, I think Chelsea are going to have to do some quite a lot to, to change in um, over the summer if they're going to actually try and fill that gap. I don't think there's any other team close who could who could maybe fill that gap. Tottenham are obviously doing well doing really well under De Conte um, since he's come in. But I think that it's, it's quite clear that City and Liverpool are and will continue to, to be uh, head and shoulders above the rest. Something else I wanted to ask you about, obviously, is at the other end of the table, and that was Leeds surviving. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, some of the individual performers, the golden boot, uh, the golden glove in a moment's time. But I wanted to switch down to the bottom of the table. And Leeds, obviously, surviving... We're going to be getting the Burnley uh, side of things in a moment's time uh, from Andy Jones, who covers Burnley for us on The Athletic. Um, but Leeds obviously showing how difficult it is in your second season. However big and however established you think you are, that second season syndrome really struck at Ellen Road, didn't it? Yeah, and I think a lot was expected of Leeds, to be honest. Obviously, after their great season last season, um, they were sort of the surprise package, weren't they, in the way that they play. Um, and I think it was kind of similar to recent years where Sheffield United came as the sort of surprise package, the way they had overlapping um, centre-backs. Uh, and then they were sort of figured out in that second season. Obviously, they went down. Leeds, of course, haven't gone down. They've they've scraped through on the final day. But it does seem that, you know, opponents do sort of work them out um, after, a, after a season of having that kind of different style of playing. So I think the main thing for for Leeds was their, their defence. And we know all the context as to why they were... Um, maybe not doing so well. They were ravaged by injuries. There was obviously a manager change, but they actually conceded 79 goals this season, which was more than any other side. So even though they've actually you know, managed to, to not get relegated, they actually have the poorest defence of, of anyone in the league. So, uh, yeah, they're going to have to certainly improve upon that. Obviously, Jesse Marsh hasn't been there for all that long. Um, but, you know, in the in the summer, they need to, to work on quite a lot, maybe get a couple of uh, signings in the door, which I think from, from reading Phil Hayes' piece this evening, it looks to to already kind of be the case. So uh, teams have worked them out, but they go again because they've got a different style now under, under Jesse Marsh. It's still high intensity, but um, but very much different in terms of their their overall playing style. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how Leeds do next season, having had such a, an impressive season in their first season, um, you know, back in the Premier League, not so good this season. Uh, the third season will be interesting to see. What I wanted to ask you about, Mark, is, you know, we're, we're dealing with a lot of the teams uh, that have uh, had successes or failures today. But in terms of the individuals, um, obviously it was, it was, I don't know, it was, a, it was a nice little subplot to see Son, uh, Hyunmin Son, sharing the golden boot with uh, Mo Salah. And it was, it was, it was quite unexpected that he, he was able to sort of close that gap right at the end of the season. Absolutely, yeah. Especially considering how fast Mo Salah started. He scored 10 goals in his first nine games in the in the Premier League and then just sort of faltered in the, the second half of the season. His form maybe took a bit of a hit as well, not just his goal scoring. Um, but Son has scored 12 goals in his past 10 games. So their their form or their goal scoring form is quite, you know, mirror each other a little bit, which I thought was quite interesting. But yeah, both on on 23 goals, they've shared it. Um, we've got a piece out currently on uh, the Athletic website for people to read all about that. So uh, written by myself, so nice little promotion there. Um, but I think that what's interesting as well is obviously key to that is that Salah um, obviously takes penalties as well. So his is, his numbers are padded out by five penalties as well, whereas Son's 23 goals are all sort of in open play. 
Um, so if it were to just be in, in open play, which I know that the the golden boot isn't, um, then it would be it would be uh, Son who leads the way. So I think it makes it even more impressive what what Son has done to close the gap, but also to score those goals in open play, which is very impressive. Do you think there'd ever be a push to exclude penalties? With my data hat on, I do think it does. I mean, if we're looking at, you know, if you're profiling a play, you would take out penalties because they're an unfair um, representation of sort of goal scoring because it's so heavily skewed towards the the striker of, of the ball. But um, no, I think, you know, it's, it's whoever scores the most goals. That's that's what the golden boot has been and will continue to be. So for this, I'll, I'll allow it. At the other end of the... Thank you. Thank you very much for allowing that. Um, at the other end of the field... Obviously, it wouldn't have come as much surprise that the, the two Brazilians in goal for Manchester City and Liverpool in Edison and Alisson won or shared the, the golden glove with, what, 20 clean sheets. But is that a fair reflection of who the, who the best goalkeeper has been in the league, considering these have the these two sides have ultimately the best best defences in front of these two goalkeepers? Yeah, I mean, you took the words right out of my mouth in terms of, yeah, the, these teams have the the best defences, but they also have, you know, some of the best goalkeepers. And I'd say that these these two goalkeepers are the best goalkeepers in the league. But as you say, they're not necessarily works the hardest, but they they come up with these big moments when they need to, but often don't face as many shots as others. But yeah, I do think clean sheets, if I'm again having my data hat on, I think that clean sheets can not always be the best indication of a goalkeeper's maybe shot-stopping performance, but take nothing away from the fact they've both got the, the golden glove. But if I were to maybe steer it towards a, a better statistical way of looking at a shot-stopping you know, performance across the season, it would be uh, a metric which I've spoken about multiple times on site called goals prevented. So looking simply at the quality of... Um, the shots that a goalkeeper's faced versus the actual goals that they've conceded and who sort of overperforms and um, out, out saves the, the number of goals they're expected to. Um, and if it were to be down to that, the goals prevented metric, it would actually be Wolves's uh, Jose Saar who would come out on top. So he he's actually prevented nine goals more um, than he'd be expected to based on the quality of shots that he's faced. Um, and even accounting for the number of the volume of shots that he has faced, he still comes out in terms of the ratio of saving far more than he far more than he should so I think that he's kind of he's bailed Wolves out a little bit you know sometimes this this season that's why as a as a team they've kind of overperformed a little bit they've faltered a little bit in recent weeks but especially early on the first half of the season Wolves were, were doing so well and so above expectation I think they had Saar to thank for that so yeah Alisson and Edison will get the the title of the the Golden Glove but my statistical award will go to Jose Saar. Mark, we're going to have to leave, leave it there. But just, just one word, just for my own peace of mind, my own sanity. Who, who had the most nutmegs in the league uh, this year, just, just so I know? As you know, Adam, it is, as a team, it is Watford. And as a yeah. player, it is Manuel Dennis. Well, there you go. And that was the most important statistic of the season, as we all know. Oh, dear. Right. I think they were singing that at some point, the Watford fans at Stamford Bridge today. But hey-ho, you've got to take something. Uh, Mark, thank you very much indeed for all your sterling work this season. Um, we're going to now kick on to someone who is less smiling. Andy is our uh, Burnley reporter, of course, and it was a, a bitter end to the season. Just just sum up the emotions today at Turf Moor. There was sort of an, a numbness that sort of came over the stadium at the full time, sort of everyone just sort of stood there and and it was reality hit for the first time, I think, because, you know, they went into into today with with a destiny in their own hands. And if the match leads as a result, then, you know, they would have stayed up. 
Um, and yeah, it was just a, a really difficult afternoon. It, it was a it was a nervy start to the game, and and then the penalty for Newcastle comes at a really you know bad time in the game, sort of at that twenty minute mark when things were you know probably about to settle. And then from that moment, Burnley just sort of got more nervy and more panicky and more frantic, and and sort of probably opened up a little bit too early. Um, and then you know Newcastle scored a second, and they leave themselves with a, a massive mountain to climb. And and it was you know in, in the end it was it was too big. In terms of you know the, the, the form since Sean Dyche left, and I would have thought that there'll be a lot of soul searching amongst the hierarchy. Um, you know, when they look back at this season, was it the right choice? There was obviously then that great bounce under under Mike Jackson. It was almost like that bounce was was too big a bounce, too early, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, after that Watford game, um, which was the you know the ten, you know, took ten points in those first four games, and and that was that was the moment where you thought, right, Burnley, are, you know, got a really really good chance and of staying up, and suddenly they'd gone from sort of the underdogs to the favourites after that result, just. Just the way sort of the fixture list looked and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it, it's all that is going to be the big what if. You know, if if Sean Dyche had maintained had stayed in charge, would he have been able to get more points than, than Mike Jackson has? And you know, it, it's been a season full of what ifs for Burnley. Whether that's you know chances missed in the last few weeks or refereeing decisions, but you know every team has those what ifs. You know. Wofford will point to them, Leeds will point to them, Everton will point to them at different stages in the season. But that's the big one for Burnley. And, you know, with the bounce that, that they had, would, would Sean Dyche have taken 10 points in those four games after the Norwich game? <laughs> I don't think anyone would have predicted that. So, you know, they got the effect that they wanted. But unfortunately, as you say, sort of the bounce peaked just that little bit too early. And, and the, you know, one more win would have got them over the line. And, and unfortunately, they just, they just couldn't find that one. Let's talk about the next steps. And obviously, a lot of attention has been put on the, the potential financial peril that Burnley will face due to that change of ownership, due to some of the, uh, the, the debts that need to be repaid for people that aren't au fait with it. You've been reporting on it all the way through, you know, from on, on The Athletic, right from the beginning. Um, and now people will now start to become aware of the financial situation. Just, just tell us exactly what that is for people that aren't, you know, au fait with it. Yeah, so when ALK bought the club, uh, it was a leverage buyout. So essentially, the you know they used a loan and, and some of the club's money to 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 help fund the purchase. Um, so that involved a sixty-five million pound loan, um, which we found out when the accounts, which came out recently. Um, and sort of one of the, the clauses of that was if Burnley were relegated, a significant amount of that would be would need to be paid back. So they're now, as they've gone down, they're, they're faced with. You know, a significant amount of that sixty-five million pound that they're going to have to repay at the end of this season. Um, but also, when you look at their, uh, the club's finances, ninety percent in the latest financial accounts, ninety percent of of their revenue came from TV money, and you know the, the Premier League TV, TV money is not going to exist for them next season. Um, so that it's it's a massive concern. Um, they they do think, and, and Alan Pace has been very sort of clear in that he thinks that. And they've got a, a sustainable plan, and that they have planned for relegation. Um, but it's going to involve relegation. You know, wage cuts were you know are the norm everywhere. I think anyway. But they're going to have to sell players, um, and you know, hope that they're going to have enough money. If not, they might have to sell more players, and and that's when it becomes a little bit more concerning. And, and you're sort of looking at a, a fire sale, but you're also looking at nine players being out of contract, and and what what futures are going to hold for them and you know that your best players you're probably going to get cherry picked are the ones you have under contract so you're looking at a you're potentially a massive overhaul um 
and it's what finances are going to actually be available for them to be able to do that. Um, they will also they'll have the parachute payments, of course, but you know how much of that are they going to be able to actually use, and or how much are they going to need to put in, you know, to pay that loan back and, and stuff like that. So there's a lot of um, I, I think uncertainty um, head moving forwards, and and it'll be interesting to see how ALK deal with this. Um, you know, as, as the summer goes on, as as they need to plan for the championship, and and you do feel that if a quick return to the Premier League isn't isn't secured, that's when you really start to fear for them because that's when you know those parachute payments are going to run out, and and then what's next? Yeah, well, we will see. Andy, thank you very much indeed for coming on uh, and your continued coverage of Burnley uh, as well. Uh, have a very good evening, and uh, yeah, from Andy who is. Smiling through it all to Greg O'Keefe, who covers Everton, who even though you get beaten 5-1 on the final day, it doesn't matter because you managed to stay up and you don't have those financial worries now for Everton um, that Burnley are now having to encounter. Greg, just sort of sum up the emotions for for Everton having survived. I know that was done in in midweek, but just in general terms, the fact that Everton have stayed in the Premier League this season, how important it is. Thursday was the most important game in Everton's Premier League history. Simple as that. Yeah. To be relegated at this stage of the development off the pitch with the Bramley Moor Stadium in the process of almost nearly approaching a quarter or more than that being built, you know, and sort of so much money ploughed into that, as well as obviously the, the disastrous can recruitment on the pitch. Um, for them to go down now would have been a, you know, a serious, serious setback. You could have potentially seen the stadium paused, uh, severely impacted whether that was going to be delivered on time. Would have lost a whole raft of players that they don't want to lose. Um, and it probably would have led to talk about whether or not even Frank Lampard would have continued. So to get over the line on Thursday was huge. It was unmistakably one of the biggest results they've had. Uh, and they, they just, they kind of, today it was pressure off the unbearable, unthinkable prospect of going down to the Emirates needing to win had been removed well before. So, I wasn't surprised with the result today. And I know many Evertonians weren't that bothered anyway. It does show, though, how much work Frank Lampard wants the dust to settle and the sort of celebrations, if you like, if that's the right word, of staying up and finished. It shows you how much he's got to get right during this summer. A lot of people, you know, put a lot of attention on the fact that there were, I mean, we, obviously we had serious issues going on on the pitch uh, at Goodison Park, which has obviously been covered with Patrick Vieira and things like that. But the fact that Everton were celebrating so much just staying in the league shows how much pressure everyone was under. Do you think that enough lessons will have been learnt from this season to restructure properly to ensure that this we don't get into a situation like this again at Everton? Because a lot of things, a lot has been put down into the sort of um, sort of almost like a pendulum between right that manager wants these players, let's get another one in, let's spend behind him. Can that be rectified? Do you think they realise that that needs to be rectified? Yeah, I hope so. Um, I know the club have embarked on a strategic review recently, which uh, the, the whole point of that was to do, as you're saying, to learn the very numerous lessons that they've had to learn of, of the waste of money and the poor recruitment mm-hmm. and the poor managerial appointments, so on and so forth, to, to try and stop that and to try and look at a more sort of committee way of, of doing things from the board with... Not to say that obviously the owner is the owner and will always have the final say on things, but for him to maybe learn that he can rely on the experience of the board and sometimes delegate important football decisions to people 
football people like the new director of football, Kevin Thelwell, like Frank Lampard himself and the rest of the board. So, the, I mean, that review was ongoing from the start, well, the turn of the year, really. Um, and it's been completed last week, we understand, and the results of that will begin to filter out in the coming weeks. And, you know, Everton is a club that is, I think, is very aware of how far it's got to go, how many mistakes have been made. And I think there really is a determination to sort of make sure that this doesn't happen again. And to, as you say, to, to make those processes more in line with the successful clubs that Everton aspire to be in that bracket, you know, the ones who've perhaps really, I'm thinking of, say, Leicester, for example, who've got recruitment absolutely spot on in recent seasons. And, you know, even the recruitment terms of Hampton. And, you know, I think Wolves, Everton really need to prove this summer because they're, they're going to have to bring in a lot of players they're doing things with a, a measured uh, and a proper way of doing it rather than being led by agents and having the owner kind of having his head turned left, right and centre and getting a, a mismatch of players coming in that you know that don't fit into the manager and the director of football strategy. Greg, thank you very much. You can enjoy your summer with a little bit more a little bit more of a relaxed summer after a, after a pretty dramatic few weeks. So thank you very much uh, for coming on and your your continued coverage of Everton in detail as well. Thank you very much, Greg. Cheers, Adam. Carl Anker is here and he's going to unmute himself very, very shortly and he's going to uh, uh, regale us with pearls of wisdom about a whole range of things. Um, before we get on to some of the, the, the awards, and we're in awards season, obviously, and we'll be telling you about um, the athletic and uh, what we're doing, because we have an awards ceremony coming up this week. I just wanted to, you know, when I see your face, I instantly think of Manchester United. And I just wanted to just quickly get into Man United, first of all. We'll be talking about Tottenham and Arsenal and things like that in a moment's time. But the final day of the season, and Manchester United have ended up in the, in the Europa League places. Um, can you sum up this season for, for Manchester United, for all the Man United fans that are watching at the moment? I mean, how do you describe it? It's been instantly forgettable. An only shambles, uh, a comedy of errors, I think is probably the best way to describe it. Uh, we've had quite a few uh, disaffected Manchester United fans try and pick the one moment that possibly could have reversed this, saying, were United better off if they had stopped going on the social? Had they kept Michael Carrick as the, the caretaker before the interim manager? Uh, and I think what this season is, is multiple chickens coming home to roost. The problems of multiple years of cost-cutting and multiple years of avoidance and hoping that money can insulate you. And yes, Manchester United have managed to finish sixth, essentially by default, because Danny Welbeck managed to get a goal against West Ham. But this is the nadir of Manchester United and probably the nadir of Manchester United post-Sir Alex Ferguson. They've they finished the season with a goal difference of zero. And you consider this is probably the most expensively assembled squad in European club football. Um, and last season, one of the better attacks in Premier League football. It, it's been a disaster. I highly recommend any Manchester United fan listen to this to check out a brand new piece written by Laurie Whitwell mm. going in-depth on... Uh, Ralph Rangnick's interim tenure, and it's startling some of the revelations in that. Yeah, well, I'm just seeing you with an earpiece in, and just, just, just for people that don't know, I think it was only ever one in the dugout. But um, just, just tell us just a little snapshot of that piece, which is probably the most ear-catching moment in it, I suppose. 
Very much so. So Laura was found out that essentially Ralph Ragnick's most trusted lieutenant during their time together at Lokomotiv Moscow was the the person in Chris Armas's airpods throughout certain sections of the game. Um, so this assistant coach who has been with uh, Mr. Ragnick throughout times at RB Leipzig and at FC Schalke uh, decided to not follow Ragnick from Russia uh, as he was committed to the project they had at Lokomotiv, but was essentially moonlighting and offering free guidance and tactical uh, and tactical analysis in his spare time from Russia and was giving this information to Manchester United uh, and Ralph Rangnick trusted this information above that of his own analytics team, which, I mean, if you consider Manchester United are, depending on who you ask, a football club and a company worth anywhere between three and four billion dollars, that so much power was given to someone doing essentially volunteer work over Y Scout is remarkable. It really is. It really is. And when you say it out loud, it just, just it's laugh. It is laughable. Genuinely laughable. Um, let's get on to some individuals away from a team that has been full of individuals underperforming to some individuals who've been performing particularly well. Um, just to explain to people out there in terms of the um, what the athletic is doing as far as, you know, Player of the Year awards and, and things like that. Yes. So uh, at full time, at 6.30 roughly, we, we had a lovely little message go around our Slack saying, asking all of our club writers to vote for our Player of the Season. We were given six votes for that. Uh, young Player of the Season, and, uh, underrated Player of the Season, Coach of the Season, Goal of the Season, Performance of the Season, so individual yeah. Premier League Performance of the Season, as well as the team of the year. So uh, I carried on with how I voted in the Football Writers Award. So I, I voted Mohamed Salah, my number one vote for player of the season. Okay. Shortly before by Kevin De Bruyne. Um, in goal of the season, I voted for Salah again for his goal against Manchester City at Anfield. Uh, my coach of the season, I gave the nod to Patrick Vieira because I think the work he's done at Crystal Palace and how quickly Crystal Palace have changed from this season compared to where they are last season deserves some form of award. Uh, my underrated player of the year is Jacob Ramsey from Aston Villa. Um, and uh, for my team of the season, I went for Jose Sarr, the, the stats darling of goalkeeping, uh, channeling Zana Arnold and uh, Jao Cancelo as my fullbacks, Virgil van Dijk with uh, Antonio Rudiger as my centre-backs. Uh, my holding midfield was Fabinho, flanked by Kevin De Bruyne and Conor Gallagher. And I had Mohamed Salah, Son, and I believe my striker would have been Harry day. Kane. It's would have be been Harry Kane. Kane. Yes, yeah. I believe that would have been that would have been the case. <laughs> <laughs> and tell us, tell us um, also, in terms of you know, we we we've spoken about sort of young player of the year in a, in a traditional sense. You're not quite on board with that. Tell us about what you're what you're doing. Yes, so this is a long-standing project that I've been thinking of since essentially lockdown one, where uh, the current parameters for Young Player of the Year, where a player has to be under the age of 23 before the season starts, I, I don't think is is truly representative of the league and truly representative of what we have. So if you consider Marcus Rashford turned 24 last year, and therefore this is his first season where he's not eligible for Young Player of the Year, despite the fact that he, this is his <laughs> seventh or eighth Premier League season. Trent Alexander-Arnold is still eligible for Young Player of the Year. Phil Foden, who won Young Player of the Year, has now played multiple seasons. Uh, I think perhaps we could do 
with a new methodology of creating Young Player of the Year. So I had a fantastic conversation with Duncan Alexander at Opta. And I said, I want to start from scratch. I want to create a new methodology and create something called Rookie of the Year. Or for listeners that don't like an American term, we can call it Debutant of the Year or Newcomer of the Year. So there's a piece now on The Athletic that explains my methodology. It has a short list of 12 players. I've asked readers to select their winner from that 12. And next week, we will announce our winner of Rookie of the Year. I will also essentially apologize for gaps in my methodology because I'm going to borrow an old Steve Jobs quote about how you don't have to be perfect, but you do have to iterate fast. And I think there were some very, very good reader comments that pointed out some flaws in my methodology. So what I did was I started with every football player that made their debut in the this season. There were 131 players. Uh, I then looked into every player that played over 1,500 minutes because I thought half halfway of the season is 17-10 and I thought you should probably drop that for the January transfer window injuries and COVID and whatnot. Uh, so everyone that played over 1,500 minutes went into a big old pot. Then I wanted to have a look at any player that was under the age of 23 before the season started. I did a little bit more tweaking and refining and got a short list of 12 players that I thought were candidates for Rookie of the Year. Uh, very much saying these are the outstanding players or the future rising stars of the Premier League. Uh, I very much invite all readers, listeners on the athletic to, to help me decide the winner for next season. And when is that going to be announced? Uh, I will try and announce this for Thursday. I think that's quite fine. I've got okay, my own. We're doing. I've got two of uh, personal award shows to take part on this week, but I'll try and get this all done by Thursday for you. <laughs> Fantastic. Man in demand. So we we do have our award show uh, live on uh, Twitter, on Facebook, on um, YouTube as well, coming up on Thursday when we'll announce all of our uh, winners, player of the year, young player of the year, team of the year, et cetera, et cetera, and rookie of the year via Carl as well. Carl, thank you very much indeed. Uh, don't forget you can continue to read the work of Carl Anker on The Athletic. Head to theathletic.com and uh, you will be able to find all of our readers on there, including Amy Lawrence, who has now joined us because we need to deal with Arsenal and we need to deal with Tottenham. Tottenham obviously have finished in the top four. They will be playing Champions League football. Um, Amy, I will come to you in a moment's time, but I feel it is only fair to give Charlie Eccleshare um, his, his moment to just sum up the Tottenham side of things and then I will get your view on where it maybe or maybe didn't go wrong for Arsenal this season. So let's just hear from, from Charlie first of all. Hi everyone, sorry not to be joining live, but as this is recorded, I'm probably uh, on a train back to London. Um, so yeah, I'm here at Carrow Road, um, doing the final cleanup operation behind me, uh, reflecting on Spurs, pulling off what seemed mission impossible a few months ago after they lost uh, 1-0 at Burnley and they had a negative goal difference and they were seven points off the top four, albeit with games in hand, uh, and everyone was saying it was done. There was one plucky reporter who put his head above the parapet and tweeted on that night that he still thought Spurs would get top four, but we, you, know, you don't want to hear about that. Uh, I was asked to say that, by the way, that's not just me uh, being myself up yet again. Uh, but yeah, it did seem very unlikely. Um, Spurs had it all to do at that point. They, they were massively up against it, if you cast your minds back to the end of October when Nuno was sacked amid that 
horrible atmosphere at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium uh, when they lost 3-0 to United. Conte's come in and done, you've got to say, an absolutely unbelievable job. Um, you know, the way they're playing, there have been some rocky moments. He's had more than his fair share of them, you know, <laughs> constantly saying, uh, you know, the team's not good enough or he's not good enough or they're not ambitious enough. And even today, he still wasn't committing his future to the club. He's sitting down with uh, the club's hierarchy sometime next week, probably the latter part of the week, um, to talk about his future. But it would seem now such a shame and a, a, an odd move on his part to move on. So it's just come down to whether Spurs are going to back him and you've got to think they will. Now they're in the Champions League. Um, an amazing day and, and the icing on the cake was Son scoring twice to uh, go level with Mo Salah in the race for the Golden Boot. So they, they share it and, and Son did it without scoring any penalties, which is pretty amazing. 23 goals. But yeah, an amazing achievement for Son and one that he massively deserves. It was quite funny because they were so desperately <laughs> trying to get him a goal. It reminded me of Didier Drogba in 2010 and an 8-0 win over Wigan on the last day. He had something similar, all the players trying to find it. Uh, but anyway, amazing achievement for him. Uh, and he so deserves you know, such a selfless uh, team player and, and has often been overshadowed by Harry Kane. But uh, Son's been unbelievable this season. Uh, so yeah, a pretty perfect day. Um, for Spurs, they're in the top four. Son is the joint Premier League uh, top scorer. And that's a wrap. That is a wrap, indeed. So, um, that was the, the Tottenham view, Amy. F from Arsenal's point of view, you know, a lot of people midway point of this season were, were seeing progress, talking about progress and development under Mikel Arteta. And, and then to miss out at the end, people then start to really criticise Mikel Arteta and, and the performance of, of Arsenal. Where do you where do you stand on it? I think it would be remiss to suddenly disregard progress. Mm. Basically, we know that results are what pinpoints anybody's opinions pretty much on a daily basis in football. And I suppose you know after the when you go back to the beginning of the season, starting with three straight defeats, the idea that they would be within spitting distance of the Champions League is fairly absurd actually so at points in the season you would think um uh, Arsenal catastrophic at other points that sense of progress felt really tangible and people got quite drawn in by it and like most things the reality is probably somewhere in the middle um and I think that after two seasons finishing eighth which was really so below par for what Arsenal hoped for Getting back into Europe and uh, no disrespects to Manchester United, but getting back into what you might call sort of Europe proper with the Europa League, even if it isn't quite the Champions League that everyone was desperate for. And of course, there's that feeling of frustration having had it in their hands and then you know essentially just dropping it as if it was too hot a potato to handle. Um, you know, they'll be feeling that. But today at the Emirates, there was also, I think, a, a really quite welcome sense of recognition on the part of the crowd towards the players and the club and the manager that, OK, it would have been fantastic to have got that little extra bit further. But you could feel that there was a sense that everybody wanted to acknowledge that this season has signified progress. And, and within the season, making some bold decisions as well which you know ultimately that's one word you know, <laughs> bold brave some people would be saying you know they were they were dodgy decisions at the time you know to get rid of Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang but these are decisions that 
that were based on on faith being shown, even if it didn't work out at the end of this season. So do you think that the the next pieces of the jigs are almost ready to put in place? So next season there is more of a solid or believable challenge for the top four? Well, I think when you look back, the, the the signings that they made last summer, which was sort of, I suppose, a, you know, a really big stepping stone of the development of this team where they, for the first time in a long time, looked like they actually had a strategy, choosing young, hungry, uh, up-and-coming players, um, banking on that sense. And one of the things, there are two things that Mikel Arteta has gone on about big time this season, one of which is his favourite word, unity. And the Aubameyang situation is wrapped up with he's not the first player or may not be the last, that if you're not all in, in uh, the way Arteta thinks is fundamental, then you're out. Um, But he is such a believer in having a core group of very dedicated, uh, you know, very hungry players on which to build. It's obvious that that's still a work in progress because the strength in depth was not there when it mattered. And I think that... um, the Aubameyang decision will obviously be critiqued because if you let go of your main striker, um, even if he hadn't been in his best of form, you know, the, the numbers that came overall from Arsenal strikers this season were very poor. So they had to rely on, you know, Saka, Smith-Rowe, Martinelli, really, really young kids to provide the sort of numbers that you'd normally get from a much more experienced attacking player. Um And it cost them, as did not having, in the end, backup in important positions, fullback, centre midfield with Thomas Partey, where it just caught up with them. I think in the end they were, you know, they were those couple of points short, probably because of those things. So uh, knowing the way that Arteta is quite studious and analysing what's going on, he will, will know exactly who he wants, if not in personnel, in positions. And I think I expect Arsenal to be relatively aggressive again in the transfer window. So it feels like this summer is a critical one to build on what they did last year to take that next step. I think they did a lot of clearing up, getting rid of various players um, and they're halfway there. But they've got, you know, obviously a way to go just to get in the top four and then a whole other way to go after that to try and look into the distance at where Liverpool and Man City are. Obviously, in between, there is Tottenham who have finished fourth, how much does it smart and how much is, does it add just that extra bit of confusion in the emotions that it is Tottenham that have got fourth rather than Arsenal? I wouldn't say confusion. I'd say it's probably very clear. <laughs> um, and I think you're probably right if it had been any other club who had uh, nipped in ahead at the last, it probably would have been easier to take. Mm. Uh, having said that, you know, in the cold light of day, you can't get too wrapped up in that. And I think Arsenal, the people involved in the club uh, and a lot of supporters have really noticeably come on board this season. It's taken, you know, there are a lot of people who who have the feeling that the atmosphere and the connection between the fan base and the, the players in the club is the best it's been for quite some time, you know, several years now, because people have got something to believe in. People have got something that they feel, they look at and they think, I actually believe in this. Uh, and even if it's not perfect now, you can see that it could be the start of something a bit special. And I don't know any fan who hasn't at some point of the season really like dived in to the deep end with that sentiment. So, it, you know, yes, it would be better if it wasn't that lot. But 
Arsenal have got to look after Arsenal. And in the end, they've got to analyse their own performance. They lost 13 matches in the Premier League and that's just too much. Um, if one of those wins had been uh, a better result over the course of the season, that would have probably got them in the Champions League. But there wasn't enough substance across the... It was a very streaky season, some good moments, some horrendous moments, then a good run again and then another slip. Somehow they've got to get a bit more equilibrium with a bit more quality in the squad and individual quality to lift that level again. Could could I see? I should imagine could help them to make up those extra points because it hasn't been much that they've missed out on. So progress this season, but if there is going to be spending, there may well be just a little bit more genuine pressure on Mikel Arteta to deliver next season. Amy, really appreciate you coming on as always. Thank you very much indeed. Enjoy your summer. Okay, let's deal with the top two now. And we have to start with the side that finished in second place. And I think you can see on the on the faces of both James Pierce and Kiva O'Neill, they're putting a they're putting a brave smile on it. But just, you know, it, it was so close today, and there was almost cruel hope, wasn't there? Kiva, let's start with start with you. How, how do you sum up the sort of the emotions of the day? Well, it's the hope that kills you, isn't it? I think, you know, for everyone talking for weeks about Gerard and Coutinho, and it felt like that was all sort of coming true for Liverpool. And then, you know, I think you kind of look back and think, had Liverpool scored a little bit earlier, maybe, you know, City would have, you know, what would have happened at the Etihad, maybe it would have been different. But, I mean, hats off to them. They scored three goals in five minutes to win the Premier League title. So, you know, full credit to them. But, yeah, just think heartbreaking, devastating feeling, you know, among Liverpool supporters. That'll, you know, take a little bit of time to to get over. But, you know, in 2019, the way they got over it was going on and, and winning the Champions League. So that's something that they could definitely do to help nurse this particular hangover. Yeah, James, what was the feeling, you know, afterwards with, with Jurgen Klopp and, and with the players? Was it almost as if, yeah, look, we were coming into this and it was it was an outside chance due to the fact that everyone was expecting Manchester City to, to do what they needed to do. Obviously, you know, not in that dramatic fashion. So they were almost, they had one eye on the Champions League final already. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd say it was a real mix of emotions, really. I think certainly a degree of devastation when you come that close. And it had been a day just mm. full, of, full of drama and, and tension. Um, but I think also... You know, I think afterwards from Klopp and the players and also from the fans, really, you know, a degree of, you know, do you know what? You know, we, we, you can't be down. You can't be feeling down for long because you know, the perfect pick me up is the fact you're off to Paris for a Champions League final next weekend. And, and also the manner of missing out. I think it's different if, you know, if you've had a lead that's been you know frittered away. But Liverpool were 14 points behind City in January. You know, it didn't even look like we'd get a title race. So, um you know, I think in the context of that, you know, they took 51 points out of the last 57 on offer. It was a, you know, a remarkable effort, you know, you know, on, on, you know, in the context of winning both domestic cups and reaching the Champions League final. So, so yeah, it hurt, I'd say, today for everyone involved. But um, I'd say pride was still the kind of the overriding emotion at the end because, um, you know, I, I don't think anyone could possibly look back with, on this season so far with anything but immense pride at what this group of players and this manager have done. And, you know, the biggest prize that you can possibly win is still up for grabs in Paris against Real Madrid. And Kiva, there was that sort of the strange dynamic added by having Steven Gerrard involved and, 
it was almost as if he was doing what we wanted. He was doing the job. He was being he was being our, our saviour and it was going to happen. But, you know, it slipped and it, it's unfortunate for him, although his priority is Aston Villa, that, you know, he couldn't he couldn't follow through ultimately. Yeah, you felt like that was the fairy tale ending maybe or, you know, the Hollywood story about to be written after obviously, you know, him never winning a Premier League title with Liverpool, you know, club legend, played so many games, dragged Liverpool through so many games. You know, the, the quality of players around him wasn't always up to it, but, you know, he, he always fought and you hoped that something like this could happen for him in a way as well, you know, to sort of help Liverpool win the 20th Premier League title. But, yeah, just just wasn't to be. You know, it felt like it might be and then... Yeah, just slipped away. I think once City got one, you felt they'd get two. And then as soon as they got two, it was like you knew they'd get another. And that's exactly what happened. So an incredible turnaround from them. And, you know, maybe future stories will be written with involving Gerard and, and Liverpool. But, yeah, today just wasn't to be, unfortunately. And the, the, the solace that every Liverpool fan can can take, obviously, James, is, is the fact that there is that next trophy to, to go and win. You know, the season doesn't end here for Liverpool you know obviously you'll be covering it in depth both of you for for the athletic what what is the plan now for for this week for for Liverpool just to sort of tune back into to Paris yeah it's I mean it's certainly a far cry from the preparations for the Champions League final against Tottenham three years ago because back then they had a three-week break between the end of the Premier League and the mm. Champions League final and Back then, the dilemma for Klopp was trying to maintain some degree of rhythm with players going that long between matches. And you know, they went off to Marbella and had a training camp. They organised a friendly against Benfica B. And um, you know, th- this time around, you know, it's it's at the other end of the scale. You know, when they report to Kirby for a recovery session on Monday, the Champions League final will be five days away. You know, it's it's an incredibly quick turnaround. All about rest and trying to, you know, trying to revive. I think, you know, some pretty aching limbs and I think probably weary a little bit mentally as well. After you know, it's Paris will be game sixty three for Liverpool this season. You know, they've played every single fixture they possibly could have done across the board, and um, yeah, it's all about trying to summon one final huge effort on the on the biggest of stages. And um, you know, we know how dangerous Carlo Ancelotti's side are from. The, the what the teams they've knocked out en route to the final, but you know also if Liverpool hit the heights they're capable of, then there's absolutely no reason why you know when they have their parade through the streets of the city next Sunday that they um, they have the European Cup as well as both domestic cups to to show off to their supporters. James Kiva, thank you very much indeed. Enjoy your evenings, and uh, obviously there will be continued coverage uh, in that build up to uh, the Champions League final uh, for Liverpool on The Athletic. Now, Sam Lee has joined us. Hello. Are you dressed as some sort of Manchester City Santa Claus? It looks it's fantastic. No, no there you are. You look fantastic. It's not coordinated for that. It's, it's just a white hoodie and a, and a simple denim shirt. Nothing more. Um, yeah, in, the, in, the right light, in the right lighting, I can imagine. Yeah, that's how it looks. Obviously, Sam Lee covers Manchester City for The Athletic. Um, just Where are you at the moment? Yeah, I did ask if I could do this from the pub, and apparently I can. So it's a Fletcher Moss in Disbury. Um, you can, I think you can see. I can hear the noise. Hear the beer. Yeah, there you go. Well, I mean, what do you expect? It's, it's the authentic experience. Yeah, everyone's uh, everyone's very happy. We're very shell shocked, stunned. You know, they've had they've gotten a muscle memory from 2012, but I don't think anybody expected to go through all that again today. Can you just sort of paint the picture of of the 
the angst to the adulation, I suppose, of that day. I mean, it's 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 difficult, but it only took what five minutes for it to to change. Yeah, well, in terms of that angst, I mean, look, you can imagine it. Yeah, look, anybody who watched it could imagine it happening to their own team or being in a position. I'm sure it's happened. Everybody's watched their own team being in a good position, and then it just completely changed. Um, I th- so that's that's relatable. But I think with City, there was always the fear as well. It wouldn't just be losing the league, but it would be Liverpool winning it and Liverpool quite possibly or probably in the minds of City fans winning all four trophies, which would make them automatically one of the best club sides of all time, if not the best. Certainly there's an argument for best. If you win all the trophies, you can't argue with that. Um, and that was the fear. And also the way that it had come about, you know, if you were to bottle it essentially on the last day, then you're never going to live that down. And not just live that down, but you've got that kicker of people being the ones to do it and, and the four trophies. So there's the angst for you. Like all the worst nightmares were coming true. You know, the City-Liverpool rivalry has developed over the last few years. When they played each other in April, everybody was like, can it be a proper rivalry without the managers and players and hating each other? But, you know, the fans, there is a real kind of toxicity there. They don't like each other. Um, and, yeah, so 2-0 down, not just we're never going to live this down, but also the worst thing you could possibly imagine is also going to happen. So that angst, yeah, that that's that was the depth of it. That was how bad it really was. And, and also, I suppose, you add into the fact that as good as City are, when they do have days like today, when they're doing what they need to do and they're putting the balls in the box but nothing's happening they don't normally come back Guardiola always says congratulations to the opposition shake hands go home but they couldn't do that today there was no option to do that today so the, the angst didn't last for long five six minutes and they turned it all around we've we've seen Pep Guardiola emotional on various different topics over the years obviously in, in successful moments we've seen him teary before but on full time today it was it was written all over his face how how tense that day must have been for him and for the players. How did he react to it? What did he say that really stuck out for you? Well, you never know with Guardiola. Like recent weeks, I think after the Leeds game, uh, when they won 4 0, he was kind of like downcast in terms of his demeanour. If you were just a body language amateur, you'd say, okay, he's a bit downcast. Maybe they lost that game. And after the Real Madrid game when they lost, it was quite energetic and kind of as if they'd won. So you can't really tell with Guardiola and his moods and these kind of things. Um, but the thing he said today, what, what I remember the most, he was like, these City players are legends now. Like you can't, he goes, I'm sorry, but the people can't argue with that. These, these, are, these are legends like all time for the club because of what they've done. Um, he said, hopefully, he said it was the best atmosphere he was experienced at the Etihad Stadium. He said, since the Real Madrid game, well, he said the Real Madrid home game was great. The Newcastle game after they got knocked out of the Champions League was great. Today was the best one. He said, hopefully they can celebrate it tomorrow on the streets. They've got a trophy parade tomorrow at 6pm. Uh, he said, I'll bring the beers and the cigar. And then he was like, yeah, I, I will bring the cigar. Don't worry. So he was in that kind of celebratory mood. But yeah, when he was in there, he was very much the kind of low voice pep, talking through things all very sensibly. It wasn't the kind of exuberant, tearful, emotional pep that we saw on the touchline. Because when they scored that third goal, jumping up and down, arms waving all over the place, like you say, the, the tearful celebrations at the end, that's because he knows, you know, he's been saying for so long, almost as if, not as if if they didn't win the trophy, it wouldn't matter, but he knows what his players have given. He knows the achievement of what they've done so far to go all this way in all the competitions. And look, people might say they bottled it against Real Madrid, bottled it against Liverpool in the semi-final, but to be there every season, semi-finals, semi-finals, finals, 
winning the Premier League. He knows what it takes from his players. He knows the effort, the effort, the level of commitment. And I think to see that go up in, in smoke or threaten to go up in smoke, I, as much as he could be proud of them and tell the world that he'd be proud of them if that had happened, everybody knows, you know, finishing second is not the same as finishing first. It's just not. He said after the game as well, he goes, Jurgen Klopp said it brilliantly. You can only have so many winners, but there's a lot of tryers. And he said he likes that because there are a lot of tries. And he goes, you're going to tell me Liverpool aren't good enough or uh, bottled it because they didn't get over the line. No way. Both amazing teams, as the guys were saying before, only one team could win it. And the mad thing is, as much as I was saying earlier on, all the City fans thinking, OK, it's going to go, it's going to go wrong. Liverpool are going to win it. It's all written in the stars for Liverpool. It's all set up for the quadruple. As much as all that felt like that for City fans, City still, despite being 2-0 down, they still did it. And, you know, that's why... That's why they're still out now. Well, they'll be out for as long as this place is open till, and the rest. Yeah, a good few hours, a good few hours yet, and all the way through until to uh, to tomorrow as well. Just one final one, just sort of kicking it on to next season. Obviously, that will be, you know, the aim will be to try and win the the Premier League uh, three years on the bounce. Obviously, we know that uh, Holland is coming in. Is there anything else that needs to be done, or is is it, is well, it, yeah. Is it pretty well, need, straightforward? Needs, needs in the way that Fernandinho's left, so you need somebody there. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the hero so of the that. day, Gundogan, as well, potentially. Exactly. I, I kind of have a feeling. Look, there's no way of knowing if this is true or not. I don't. Even, I don't even think he would know. There's definitely an option that he can go, and that has been for a while. I wonder if today changed that. I wonder if now he's now he's a club legend. You know, he woke up today as a player that the players appreciate and like. You know, he's done a lot for this club, but now he's a club legend. He had the biggest cheer when they read out the, the names afterwards for the trophy. So maybe he'll stay. I don't know. Maybe he'll stay. But yeah, so if he goes, they'll need to get somebody else, I think. But Fernandinho replacement, a lot of talk about Calvin Phillips, possibly. Um, and a, a left back, I think they should get a right back and they should keep Cancelo and Zinchenko at left backs. They should get a right back to go with Carl Walker. Um, but it seems like a left back. Kukurea was obviously mentioned last week. Um, I think Brighton seemed to be suggesting they'll put up a bit of a fight with that. Um, but it seems like there's definitely that's definitely an option. I couldn't tell you whether it's definitely going to happen or not. Um, the interesting thing with City is they put so much effort into signing Haaland. They're, quite, they're a bit behind where they normally are. Normally, by April, May, they know who they want to sign. They've got verbal agreements, written agreements, whatever. And then they go to the club and say, OK, let's do it. But now they are a bit further back and they're kind of catching up a bit because they put so much effort into getting Haaland. And obviously, he's, he's, he's the big one. They'll announce his signing next week and talking about next season, you know, people will be, other teams will be fearing how they're ever going to keep up with City, but there's plenty of time to talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, enjoy the evening. Sam, thank you very much indeed. Take care. And uh, the coverage will, of course, continue from Sam Lee throughout uh, the summer. Uh, on The Athletic, there's going to be plenty of big Manchester City stories all the way through. Um, we do hope you've enjoyed our review of this dramatic final day of the season in the Premier League. A few technical errors to start off with, but we uh, we pulled it through. A few teams, you know, struggled at the beginning of the season and then they finished off well. And hopefully we did that for you as well. Um, don't forget that we have our awards ceremony coming up on Thursday. Once again, here from the Athletic HQ in London, we'll be going through our player of the year, young player of the year, team of the year, goal of the season, um, and many, many uh, more awards as well. And the coverage will, of course, continue. The season is over, but there is so much more to talk about. Obviously, we'll be reflecting on the end of the seasons um, around Europe as well with our dedicated reporters around Europe. Uh, we have all the US coverage 
as well as the MLS continues. But we have the transfer window opening very shortly. Uh, we have the uh, Euros, the women's Euros coming up as well. We'll be reflecting on when the season's fixtures are released in the Premier League and in the Football League as well for Watford fans as well and for many others like Burnley and for Norwich too. We will reflect on those. We have every base covered. Uh, we do hope you've enjoyed the season's coverage, but it will carry on. We're already planning for the next week for the Champions League final uh, with Liverpool and Real Madrid. So there's so much more to come. Uh, thank you very much for your attention uh, this evening. My name is Adam Leventhal and I'm signing off for the season here at the Athletic HQ. Take care, everyone. All the best. The Athletic.